Welcome to episode 12 of Untangled Faith. But then the flip side of that is blasting those who might threaten that. So blasting those who might bring a shadow where we're used to basking in the sunlight and the glory of all of this. The response then is to blast that person as a way of removing the negative associations that that person is bringing into the picture. The bystanders shouldn't have to be fighting to expose these dark secrets. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Today, I'm sharing part two of my conversation with Wade Mullen. Mullen is the author of the book, Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. He's also a professor, researcher, and advocate working to help those trapped in the confusion and captivity of abusive situations. I'm rewinding a bit to set the stage for today's episode. In order to preserve the context of this conversation, I wanted to rewind and start with the conversation that we began at the end of the last episode. So if this sounds familiar, there is a little bit of overlap. The question of, you know, what, what do I do when it comes to abuse? Quite, the, the answer has to be highly contextualized. Abuse can take so many different forms. I think there are some principles that can apply just about in any situation, though. And I think one of the principles is to stop and pause and make sense of what you are hearing. And I think there's some wisdom behind that of asking the question, what do I need to understand that perhaps I don't understand? Um, who do I need to talk to, perhaps, that can help shed light on my understanding? So there could be an expert in whatever the situation is that can help you understand what you're, what, what you're hearing. So it's pausing and uh, trying to arrive at an accurate understanding of what, of what you're hearing. And then I think another principle is to check your own motives and check your own emotional state because it's easy for us to excuse our own inaction and remain indifferent or keep the other person and their story at an arm's length by saying, you know, it's none of my business or, you know, wouldn't it be right for me to get involved? What we're really doing is we're denying the injustice. And I think it's important for us to allow ourselves to face the injustice, to face the assault on beauty and to become angry about that, righteously angry about that, and to be sad about it and to sit in that pain that you've just encountered. Because I think good advocacy needs to be driven by strong emotion, strong regulated emotion. It needs to be driven by empathy. It needs to be driven by a concern for other people who might also be harmed. It needs to be driven by a love for the person who has been harmed. It needs to be driven by concern for the person who is inflicting harm on other people. That is something that has to be 
guarded, I think. By the way, I would say too that if you're a bystander, I think you need your own assistance. You need your own therapy. You need your own person who's able to guide you as you take those steps. Kind of create these structures for yourself that will allow you to advocate well, to advocate in an ethical way, and to advocate in a way that will help you preserve your your own health. And then you need to come up with a strategy, I think. You need to come up with a game plan. You need to decide what action steps you're going to take in order to help shine light on this. And so that that obviously then has to be highly contextualized depending on what the situation is. And once you've seen something, you can't unsee it. Once you hear something, you can't not hear it. Yeah. I think some people don't want to see, so they will purposefully not, they'll purposely look away or they'll purposely close, you know, plug their ears. There's an aspect of that that is normal. You know, anytime we come across something that is tragic, I think there's a normal response to that, that we have to be aware of. And, and so we need to also kind of give, our, give ourselves some, some grace. I also think that, you know, this is where help from other people, you know, is really important so that you're not just advocating by yourself so that you can get some support from other people. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's very difficult. It is very difficult, and I'm not sure everyone appreciates how hard it can be to be a bystander who chooses to act on behalf of someone who's harmed, because most bystanders won't do anything. So when you become a bystander who chooses to act, you become often a target yourself. It is a difficult road to walk down, and I'm not sure everyone understands the cost that many bystanders who choose to act have had to pay. Yeah. I have an interview that I am sharing with Melissa Hogan. Her former husband worked for Ramsey Solutions. And she said to me that she had not, she didn't want to say some things to some of her friends about what she was seeing and experiencing because she knew that knowledge would be a burden. It would require someone to do something. She didn't want her friendship to be costly to other people. So she was in some ways willing to just not say anything and just carry that herself because she knew that people of integrity would feel compelled to do something. So it is, it's very, it's a very hard situation to be in. And and one of the things that I, I've tried to do when I come across this phenomenon of the bystander and, and what they do with information that they have, that perhaps they didn't, they didn't expect to have, they didn't for, but now they have it, is to try to reframe the situation by looking at it from from the perspective of the harm and the damage that the perpetrator has caused, and that this is an effect, a consequence of that abuse of individuals or organizations' behavior, that they have created this environment where there are dark secrets that exist. And now an individual, let's say a bystander, is possessing, you know, that abusive individual or organization's dark secret that they shouldn't have to be carrying. And that situation is caused by the abuser. And it's that in and of itself, isn't it, is an injustice. And yeah, so it's... That's a really interesting point is that the burden for the negative outcome should not be on the truth teller. Right, right. So the, the, the bystander shouldn't have to be fighting to expose these dark secrets or 
fighting to try to figure out, you know, what do they, how, how do they carry this dark secret? Um, what do they do with it? Who do they tell? Who do they not tell? They shouldn't have to be working through all of that if the abusive individual or the organization was trustworthy, was uh, operating with transparency and honesty. And so it's part of the shadow that is being cast by the toxic, abusive environment. People are having to figure out what they do with information that is weighty and heavy and toxic and information that they shouldn't have had to carry to begin with. Have you had any crazy, wild, unexpected um, responses to your book? I've had a couple people now reach out and say something along the lines of, I recognize how I have harmed other people. And I've been encouraged by that because the vast majority of the readers are those who have been harmed. Mm -hmm. And I've had a couple people say, hey, I did this when I was in power, you know, over a group of people, you know, this was a very difficult read for me. So that, yeah, I would say that's probably in the category of something that I hoped for necessarily expect. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more rare, but you have had a few conversations like that. Do you have any examples of places, organizations, churches that have responded well, or either at some point they got their act together, even if initially their first response to an image threatening event was protection. And I would say that, that I, this is one of the common questions that I get is, do you have any basically models for us of a church or an organization that has, has done it well? There are examples of organizations and churches who have taken positive steps. I don't know of any that I believe have done all that they can and ought to do because one of the one of the steps that I think any church or organization ought to take is to offer generous restitution to the people they've harmed and I'm sure that they're out there but I don't know of a public example to point people to sure there are there are churches who have made statements of apology which is a positive thing and there are churches who have um, removed leaders which is a positive thing so there are churches that have taken good steps, but I, I don't think that we have a clear understanding of what the standard needs to be. And I think one of the tests of change, the sincerity behind that change, is the sacrifice that an individual or an organization is willing to take in order to not just restore what somebody has lost, but to go above and beyond to offer mm. generous restitution, you know, like up to four times the amount that a survivor has spent on counseling costs over 20 years. I haven't seen that kind of generous restitution yet. And if it's done in a real sincere way, you know, maybe we would hear about it from a survivor that wants to tell that story and not from an organization or a leader themselves. Right. Yeah. And and I also think that the organization will see that as part of their own story and not try to separate the pain from their own story. I think what that could mean and or look like is keeping a statement up on their website permanently, uh, creating a memorial at their church uh, for the people that they have harmed. You know, so there's ways in which I think they can they can tell the story of their own wrongs and then what they continue to do to 
make that right so that, again, other people, those who have been victimized, they don't have to be the sole bearers of that story. The church is in some way taking that responsibility off of them and saying, you know, if anybody ever asks you what happened, why did you leave? You can point them to our website. Um, so I, I think there's just a lot that we haven't seen yet that I hope that someday we will see. People are looking for, like, are there positive examples? You know, are there stories of redemption? And are there stories of change that will give us hope? And I will say that there are some at the individual level. I think there are many at the individual level where, like, I know of a pastor who realized that years ago when he was leading a church, he abused his power and he hurt a lot of people. And he spent two years meeting with and writing to those who were willing to speak with him to apologize and to make amends. You know, So it's very moving when I heard that. I heard of a story of a church who realized that 30 years ago when they split from another church, that it was done deceptively and it was done in a way that caused a lot of pain. And they went back uh, those who were still there, to that church that they had split off from. And they apologized for what happened 30 years ago because the pain was still real. And so there are examples of individuals, and you don't hear, you know, they're not public. There are examples out there of people who have done positive things to to make things right. Yeah. I love hearing that. And, you know, we want to hang on to something because (laughs) we don't want to, you know, just burn the whole thing down and wash our hands of it. Most people listening to this are believers. We have faith in a God that can redeem all things. It's just that I think the timing of it sometimes takes a lot longer than we would like. And, And in most cases, it doesn't happen in this life. And that's, and that's the sad reality. So I did kind of spring on you last minute asking if you would be willing to look at that response um, to that religion news service article that came out in January by Bob Smetana regarding Ramsey Solutions. And what um, a good journalist does is they reach out to the other side and they ask for their response and so that they could get their comment on what was what they were going to be reporting on. And in the article, there was going to be some very serious allegations made that the company had known about and was covering up some serious issues with one of their high profile speakers, as well as some as some other high control things happening and unhealthy things that some of us were talking about with Bob. And so they responded. And I am curious of your thoughts on what you saw in that response. On January 15th, 2021, Bob Smetana published an article about Ramsey Solutions. I had gone on the record for this article. And that Friday morning, I sat at my friend's dining room table and waited anxiously to read the final product. When it was finally live on the website, we noticed that Bob had linked to a response from Ramsey Solutions. The previous day, he had reached out to them for comment on his reporting. As I read the response, I was shocked at the bullying, sarcasm, and blatant misrepresentation of Bob and his work. What what I do, what I did in the dissertation, and what I'm trying to help people do for themselves for the book, is to conduct a called qualitative content analysis, a piece of material. It's important that that analysis be reliable, that your interpretations have some degree of reliability. So there are tests of reliability. And so one of the tests is to 
give a framework, you know, a certain certain categories of impression management, let's say, to a group of people, three people maybe, and you teach them this framework and you teach them these definitions and you practice how to apply them to different pieces of content. You do some training and then you you test that over time and you see so that's called inter-rater or intercoder reliability. You know, if you don't have multiple people to do that and you're just doing it yourself, then there's ways to test what's called intra-rater or intercoder reliability where you know you look at a piece of material and you interpret it, you code it, you categorize it, and then you wait maybe 14 days and you do it again. It's just recognizing that there are other factors that might be influencing your interpretation. You could be you sick sure. or hungry or anything. Then so you're saying that you just have you looking at it right now. You don't right. have a team. This, yes. And this morning, right? So that's my, right. that's my long disclaimer. Right. To clarify, Wade is saying that there is subjectivity to this process and that to get the most reliable results, it's best to have several different people to do analysis of the communication. Wade is giving his personal opinion on the Ramsey response within the constraints he had. It was only him looking at it, and he didn't have the luxury of going over this several times over a longer period of time. Here's what he saw. You know, there's a subjectivity to it. The two group of tactics that stuck out to me as I mainly read the response to Bob are what's called burging, basking in reflected glory. And then the other side of that coin is a tactic called blasting. So these are what are called indirect tactics, complex deception, creating a whole host of connections to associations, associated events or associated people like name dropping. You know, I, you know, I grew up in the same town as so-and-so, right? So these are indirect methods of managing our image and shaping the impressions others are forming of us because we're not just presenting information that's directly about us, but presenting information about someone or something else knowing that the people who are looking at that information will connect us to that and it will shape their image of us as well. So yeah. it's this indirect kind of approach to managing managing people's impressions of us. So with Dave Ramsey, what I'm seeing is some self-promotion, some basking, right? Basking in past success, basking in going from rags to riches, basking in, you know, big brand new building. When we're basking, we are enjoying the the sunlight that is bouncing off of something that we created or be basking in the fame and popularity of a politician or of a religious leader, that kind of thing. So we're basking, we're enjoying that. And when then with basking, a lot of times then that person is going to exaggerate. So he's calling, you know, his workplace from what I understand, a great the greatest place to work, I think. It's a good place to work. So there's this comparison to others. There's this exemplification of the organization basking in that. But then the flip side of that is blasting those who might threaten that. So blasting those who might bring a shadow where we're used to basking in the sunlight and the glory of all of this. The response then is to blast that person as a way of removing the negative associations that that person is bringing into the picture. So the only thing that can exist in the realm of someone who's basking in glory are positive associations. If negative associations start working their way in, then typically what the person who's 
who tends to bask in glory will do is to blast the person who's bringing those negative associations into the picture, primarily by belittling their strengths. You know, so this isn't a real mm-hmm. journalist or this. Yeah, where he says, he uses in quotes, freelance reporter. There's this debasing, there's this mocking, there's this, you know, sarcastic kind of language. Here are a few examples of the belittling and sarcastic response from the public relations email account for Ramsey Solutions. I'm just going to quote some of their response here. Who would have guessed that an unemployed guy, oh, I'm sorry, a freelance reporter would be the one to show us how horrible we are so we can change. As a point of clarification, the journalist was not unemployed, nor is he a freelance reporter. Later in their response from Ramsey Solutions, they went on to invite Bob to a worship service they had previously scheduled for that evening. They said Bob could bring his camera, and here's a quote. Since this is today, it won't even delay your Pulitzer Prize-winning expose of our pure evilness. Yes, you will be in a building where 1,000 people hate you. That's, a, in my mind, is attempting to create this impression in the minds of those who are reading that, that this is not a legitimate journalist, that this is not somebody who can be trusted, that this right. is not somebody uh, who's who should be taken seriously. Sort of um, framing what this reporting is. And it if you read the article, it's not at all what he did, but they say, yeah, real sarcastically, you know, we want to confirm you're right. We're horrible, evil people. We exist to bring harm to our team, take advantage of our customers and spread COVID. Right. It's exaggerating it. It's making the report sound outlandish so that it can then be easily discounted and easily condemned. The last paragraph mentions that this email was blind copied to pastors and business leaders, as well as the entire Ramsey Solutions team. The author of this email encourages people to call Bob and tell him, quote, all the evil, horrible stories you know about us. And then the email tells the recipients the city where Bob lives. And this is in the final paragraph. And I'm quoting. If you see him out and about, be sure to congratulate him on his virtue. He needs to sell this story to pay his rent. And the dirtier your story on us, the more we can help him. When you call, please do not be mean. Bob already has a lot of anxiety and we don't want to add to that. The last sentence says this. It is time the world knows about Bob and the blessing he has been to so many. You know, but the lie is in the embellishment. You know, the lie is in the exaggeration. It's kind of like saying, you know, this is this is a witch hunt. When people say that, there's really two lies often that are embedded in that. The one is the lie that says we are being hunted down unfairly. And the other lie is saying they're irrational in their hunt. This kind of communication tells multiple lies because it's all about it's all about the connections that the communicator is forming, and that's what I, I see I see here. In this case, the Ramsey response is framing this as a hit piece. They're saying we are being hunted unfairly, and they are irrational. That's what sarcasm, satire, that kind of thing does. It creates these associations that shape people's perception of the person that they want to belittle or demean or condemn. And you haven't had a lot of time to think about this. And I don't know if this goes into image um, management. What would the point of 
sending out this, this response went to the full team that works there as well as local few local business people and pastors. How, what would, why, <laughs> why would, why would that be helpful in any way as my question? Yeah. Well, of course, I don't know for sure, you know, but there are some possibilities you know, there's something called uh, anticipatory impression management where uh, somebody might know that a story is coming. Negative information is going to be out there. And so they attempt to get out in front of it. So they're basically tagging uh, or co copying uh, other people who might inevitably come across this information as a way of saying, they didn't tell you, we told you. And it's getting out in front of it because of the benefit of getting out in front of it is to is to redefine it. And so what then those local pastors or what even perhaps the employees get is Dave Ramsey's definition of the situation, which is the primary objective of impression management is to define the situation for others so they can't define it for themselves or so, so that other people can't define it for them. And so it's, a, it's an attempt to maintain control of the narrative, perhaps, by getting out in front of it. I told you Wade was smart, right? This jives with so much of what we've seen. Employees have told me of times when there has been something negative about Dave or the company in the media. Dave and specifically tells people not to give clicks to these accounts, and he spins his own narrative. His narrative was nowhere near what their real story was. Or it could be an attempt to rally supporters, could be an attempt to intimidate the journalist, could be an attempt to test the loyalty of followers. Let's see what you do with this information. Are you going to come through for me? Are you going to are you going to have my back? So there could be multiple agendas behind it. It certainly though isn't healthy. Testing loyalty. That as one of the possible reasons for sending this response to local pastors and business leaders is consistent with the communication I've heard or read from Dave and the leaders at Ramsey Solutions. Not being loyal to Dave is the unforgivable sin. Yeah. Have you seen anything like this? Um, it feels like an attempt to protect an image that is backfiring spectacularly. Right. Yes. Um, because people are seeing through it and seeing how unusual and odd it is, kind of the bully behavior. Yeah, I would say that I see similar examples when somebody receives a critical comment on Twitter in a, in a reply, let's say, and the person who has like a lot of followers takes that critical comment and quote tweets it and puts it out there as a way of calling followers to go after that person's criticism you know so i've seen that you know so it's kind of might be similar to that yeah where you're kind of putting somebody on blast so that they can then receive all of this condemnation there are numerous studies of organizational leaders who have had to respond to a scandal to a threat to their image and you know there's one in particular uh, that was done of a of a man who ran an environmental waste uh, processing company, and they were uh, called to give an account for their mismanagement. And he, in in his response to 
others who were, you know, shining a light on this, primarily engaged in what the researcher called a tactic of condemning the condemner. He was focusing his efforts on condemning those who were condemning them. So I see that too uh, yeah. happening here, where it's a, it's a condemnation of the person who's bringing condemnation. I wanted to finish out by asking you a question that somebody had asked. What kind of hope can you offer to somebody? What hope would you give to somebody that hasn't had that bow to tie it up with? I recognize how difficult it is to hold on to hope, how you become de-hoped over time. And that part of the that's part of the difficulty is knowing that that hope is waning, experiencing that and not having any control of that. The hope comes when light somehow makes its way through. I mean, you know, I'm involved in some cases right now, and I have very little hope that there's going to be a positive outcome, but I'm still engaging. I'm still taking steps because I believe that as long as there's still that opportunity for light to shine, that that light might have the power, the ability to at least slow down the evil, to at least keep the foot in the door, perhaps for others who might experience something similar. Yeah. So success isn't necessarily a, a full restoration with people that have hurt you, but maybe that you've offered help and assistance to other people. I know of a church who covered up something years ago. The person who was harmed by that cover-up had taken many steps to shine a light on the situation, and it didn't happen. The cover-up was successful. Years went by, and nothing came of that. And then somebody else came forward with a similar story, and another person did. But then all of a sudden, there was a link that was made between these multiple stories over time. That person's willingness years ago to take steps to shine a light and to call leadership to, to account became critical evidence you know, that was used to show that. And the stories that we're hearing now are likely true because similar stories were being told 10, 20 years ago. And so sometimes you don't see, you don't see the, the light break through until much later. There is a lot of evil out there, and there is a lot of evil out there that is, that, that is having its way. And where we can find hope, where we can find an opportunity to, to slow that evil down, where we can find opportunity to bring good, cultivate good, we need to cherish, we need to cherish that. I want to read this, uh, this quote that came to mind just now from uh, Judith Herman because she talks about the survivor who chooses to take pu- public action. She says the survivor who undertakes public action also needs to come to terms with the fact that not every battle will be won. But I think this is where the hope comes in. Her particular battle becomes part of a larger ongoing struggle to impose the rule of law on the arbitrary tyranny of the strong. She must be secure in the knowledge that simply in her willingness to confront the perpetrator, 
He has overcome one of the most terrible consequences of the trauma. She has let him know he cannot rule her by fear, and she has exposed his crimes to others. So there's, you know, I think there's hope that can be found in knowing that, you know, there's this larger ongoing struggle that you can be a part of. This interview and my editing schedule came at the right time. I have been feeling the weight of the cost of speaking out. I needed the reminder that I need my own support system and going back and looking at the abusive and deceptive narrative that hurt us has helped solidify in my mind that I'm not crazy and I didn't imagine this or manufacture it. I hope this conversation encouraged you. I'm positive it educated you. If you want to hear more from Wade Mullen, you can find him at wademullen.com. On Twitter, he is at Wade Mullen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Untangled Faith. If you enjoyed this podcast, the best thing you can do for me is to share it with a friend and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. For transcripts and show notes, you can find me at untangledfaithpodcast.com. And I'm Untangled Faith on Facebook and Instagram. I wanted to remind you that I have a newsletter that I send out each week on Saturday morning. I would love for you to get it. I'll be choosing two people from my email list to receive a copy of Wade's book. So be sure to sign up by July 31st, 2021. If you're listening to this in real time to be eligible, go to untangledfaithpodcast.com and sign up. I'll see you back here next week on the next episode of Untangled Faith. If the idea of speaking makes you feel like you're going to get in trouble, that's a red flag in itself. Yeah. The point of this, this episode is I really want to share with people the value of having somebody as you're coming out of a a painful situation, the value of community and how that has helped us.